couple quick announcements slash reminders. Don't forget, I know uh, they mentioned the Heart to Heart and the SKG coming up here in a few weeks. Keep that in prayer, and also, if you're interested, uh, like I said, sign-up sheets back there to the right. Hopefully, you can take advantage of that. Some great ministries there. Um, also, just wanted to remind, too, I know we announced last week, but the VBS meeting is going to be February 28th, not February 7th, so just a heads up on that. And uh, lastly, very nice to have this morning, uh, Drew Hoagland is back with us. Uh, we've been praying for Drew since, um, boy, was it November, Jody? Is that when everything happened? He had uh, surgery down at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and uh, Drew is back with us today, and it is very nice to have Drew back. So if you get a chance, make sure you go over and say hi to them and love on them for a little bit. Alrighty, we are in um, Mark 15, but uh, if you also have your Bibles there, if you would please turn to Hebrews 9, because we're actually going to be starting out in Hebrews before we get to Mark. Now, we've been talking here the last couple weeks about Jesus on the cross, and about what that means and what that represents as we're going through Mark. Last week in Mark 15, it was the physical side of the cross the sufferings he went through. We talked about what it meant to be crucified, what it meant of the trial that he went through and the mocking that he went through. Today, it's the spiritual side of everything on the cross. We're going to try to finish up Mark 15 as best as we can here. And the spiritual side is a lot different than the physical side. Because the spiritual side, you may look at some of this and say, where's the physical pain? It's amazing as we go through this in Mark 15. It was not the physical pain that got to Christ. It was the spiritual emotional pain that got to him. You know, for all that he went through physically on the cross, and like I said, we hit that last week, it's what he went through spiritually that impacted more than anything else. And that's what impacted you and I today, too. So, how did we get to this point of being on the cross? Well, you have to go back a little bit of history here. A verse that we hit last week and that we're going to hit this week, 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't need to turn there, He that knew no sin became sin for us. Great verse to know. Keep that in the back of your mind. That's our first foundation stone that we're going to build off of today. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus did nothing wrong, never sinned, but yet He became sin for us. He took the punishment and the penalty of sin so that way we wouldn't have to. So keep that on the foundation. Now let's build on that for a little bit. Because how do we get to the point of needing a Savior? You have to go back and look at Old Testament history here for a little bit. You've heard me probably go through this before. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Animals had to be killed for them. Adam and Eve sinned, animals were killed. It was a one-for-one exchange. You jump ahead a little bit to the Passover. The Passover was the families have sinned, and so therefore each family needs a Passover lamb. We talked about this a few weeks ago. So each family would have a lamb, and that lamb represented their sacrifice for sins. Jump ahead even farther, you have the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, where one animal sacrificed the whole sins for the nation. So we go from one-to-one with Adam and Eve, one animal for one family at Passover, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, one animal for the entire nation, and then you build up to Jesus, one sacrifice for the entire world. God is a very logical God, and I like that about Him. And you see it building up to this point of one sacrifice for sins. And this is what Hebrews is talking about. Three quick verses here in Hebrews, and we're going to sum up the entire book of Hebrews in three verses. So, first verse, Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. First point, if you want sins taken care of, something has to die. That's just the first point. Old Testament law, if you sinned or I sinned, we'd have to go say, I sinned. We'd have to go take an animal. And let's say we would go take a lamb. We'd go take that lamb, that beautiful, perfect lamb. We would put our hand on that lamb. 
And while we were putting our hand on that lamb, the high priest would actually kill the lamb right in front of us. And that was supposed to be the symbolic picture of my sin was passed to that lamb, that lamb died for what I did wrong. Very graphic, but you'd get the point. See, nowadays when we sin, there's no immediate ramification. There's no immediate lightning strikes. There's no immediate, you know, all of a sudden the world becomes dark and the voice of God speaks at us. That's why people become very callous to sin. We can get away with it, at least temporarily. No one says anything. No one does anything. I got away with it. No one saw it. Old Testament, that animal died right in front of your eyes. So, Hebrews 9.22, there has to be a shedding of blood. Next one, Hebrews 10.4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, what happens here? The writer of Hebrews says, okay, that's what we did in the Old Testament. But those sacrifices never took away sin. They just covered it up. The sin is still there. It was just covered up. Have you seen those commercials on TV for the bathroom fitters? You know, they come in and they give you a new bathroom in one day. They just cover up the old, you know? Um, Same thing with sin. That sin was covered up. That animal died. But it was never taken care of. Now, Hebrews 10.10. By that we will have been sanctified, that means set apart, saved, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then the rest of Hebrews goes into this understanding of how Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. So, first point is, there has to be death, there has to be blood to forgive sins. Second point is, animals can't do it. Third point, it had to be Jesus. That's how we get to Christ on the cross. Is we have this whole Old Testament set up that it was just a covering of sin. It was just a picture of Jesus to come. And I know most of us, when we get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we say, wow, what a boring book. But when you read through those books and you look for Jesus in it, you see how those sacrifices are a picture of Christ. And you see how those sacrifices really point us all towards Jesus. In fact, the book of Galatians says the law, that Old Testament, was really just a tutor that pointed us towards the answer in Christ. So when we have Jesus on the cross here today, and we're looking at the spiritual side of it, this is the answer to everything. I can't stress to you enough. This is the answer to everything is Jesus on the cross. And when you really get that perspective, you start realizing, you start seeing, Lord, give me that eternal perspective. Because my life is not based on my job. It's not based on my wife. It's not based on my kids. It's not based on my retirement. It's not based on anything other than Jesus on the cross. And that is what really gives us that full understanding. So, now back to Mark 16. He that knew no sin became sin for us. We left off last week at the end of verse 32 with Jesus being once again on the cross and went through the physical side of it. Now let's look at the spiritual side of what happened when He was up there. Mark 16, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark 15. I was just testing you. And most of you failed. Mark 15, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eli, lama sabachthian, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. 
Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to him to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now Mark is known for his abbreviated stories on all things. You know, Matthew takes 28 chapters to do the Gospel. Mark says 28 chapters, I can do it in 16. So sometimes with Mark, it's almost so condensed that you don't feel like, wow, am I getting the whole story? But Mark's one of those guys, I think if we'd meet him, he's just one of those guys that's to the point. And as you just read this here from verses 33 through 39, those six verses sum up perfectly everything that we need to know about Christ. Now look at the first thing here, verse 33, sixth hour. Now, that would be noon. There was darkness until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. So from 12 to 3, there was darkness. Now, why? First off, I think it's in the middle of the day to make a point. There would be no question about something supernatural happened here. If it was from 7 to 10, or maybe 4 to 7, you know, there was darkness. We'd be like, okay, yeah, darkness. You know, here it is, northwest Ohio. It's getting dark by 6 o'clock. No, Smack dab middle of the day, 12 to 3, it was dark. That's a supernatural thing. Now, why would God do that? I think for two reasons. Number one, it's symbolic of a spiritual darkness that's over the entire earth. They are darkened to the truth of what's going on here with Christ. There's a spiritual darkness over them. Number two, if you go back to Old Testament book of Exodus, before they killed the Passover lamb, what was the plague that happened before that? Plague of darkness. I think there's a symbolic picture here is that when you reject that Passover, when you reject the Lamb for your sins, there is a darkness that comes. Now, this darkness is over the land. It lasts for three hours. Now, Jesus here cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, they think he's maybe calling for Elijah, verse 35, why? At the end of the book of Malachi, Old Testament, the last prophecy given in the Old Testament is that Elijah was going to come. And so some of these Jews were looking for this, that Elijah was supposed to be coming. So they thought when he said that Eloi, Eloi, maybe they thought he was crying out for Elias or Elijah, depending on what translation you had there. And so they said, wait, maybe that's what he's crying for. And so they were waiting to see if Elijah would come. Because if Elijah would come, well, maybe this would prove something. Maybe this would show who he is. They didn't get. Jesus is bigger than Elijah. (laughs) Elijah's not going to come to save Christ. This is the reason Christ is there. Jesus already explained the prophecy of Elijah. He talked about the coming of John the Baptist earlier. But they didn't get it. They had a spiritual darkness over them. Hence, the darkness that was over the land. So, verse 36, they come to give him this sponge full of sour wine, maybe a little bit of a drink, maybe a little bit of a painkiller. And they're trying to say, no, verse 36, leave him alone. We want to see what's going to happen. This is a great show. Is Elijah going to come? Is this guy really the Son of God? Because remember we talked about last week, if he's really the Son of God, he'll just get off the cross. Let's see. And there's really this really anti-comlatic finish. Jesus hangs there, cries out, it is finished, and he dies. No Elijah, no getting off the cross, no supernatural miracles, no nothing. You know why? Because Jesus is just doing his job. His job was to come and die. And I know we've hit this a lot lately, especially with Christmas, 
But when you go back to the birth of Christ, Christ was born in this world for one reason, and that was for 33 years later to die. He's doing his job. And his job was to get up on that cross, take the sins of the world upon him, and say, I am now suffering and taking these sins that you committed, that I committed. And he says, I'm going to do this because this is what I was called to do. This is my job. And I don't want to make it sound like my job clocking in, clocking out. No, his determination was set on the cross. It says in some of the other Gospels that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, meaning that that's what he was doing. He was focused on that, the cross. Now, why is it that Jesus had such a focus and determination on the cross but yet we, now 2,000 years later, look at the sufferings of Christ on the cross and we've heard it so many times, it kind of just becomes second nature. I think that's a sad thing because we really need to stop and say, what went on here? Because what would make him cry out in verse 34? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he never cried out during the whipping, the beating, the torture, and we went through all that last week, the physical torture and pain of the cross. He never cried out. Why all of a sudden now... Is it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most people believe that when Jesus, this darkness came over the land from 12 to 3, that this was the time that God the Father turned his back on Christ. And the reason God the Father turned his back on Christ is because Christ now had the sins of the world upon him. And God the Father says, I can't associate with sin. So it wasn't the pain, it wasn't the torture it was that break of fellowship with God the Father where God the Father said, I'm turning my back on my Son because of the sin that we've committed. And that's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever been in that position? I know I have. Where you felt like you were forsaken? You felt like, does anybody care? Does anybody understand? Maybe you're living in darkness and you're crying out that same thing right now. There's a couple of interesting points about this. First one, let's just be honest. Are the reason you're in darkness, is the reason that you feel forsaken is because there's a sin in your life that needs to be dealt with? I have people come into my office a lot and they want to sit down and talk and they feel empty spiritually. They feel that there's a distance between them and God. They feel that things aren't right spiritually. <clears throat> One of the first questions I ask them, is there something in your life you know is wrong that you're not asking forgiveness for? Because when you have unconfessed sin in your life, there is going to be a spiritual darkness between you and the Lord. The Bible makes that clear. Now, God still loves you. But there's a break in that fellowship. And there's times where I just don't quote-unquote feel God. Now he's got to remember James 4. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's the classic thing. If I don't feel close to God, it's not that God's running from me. I'm running from Him. And if there's somebody here today that does not feel a closeness to the Lord, they don't feel like, where you know what's going on here, Lord? What's wrong? Just ask. Is there something in your life that needs to be dealt with? Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. Because if there's not, it takes us to our next point. God sometimes allows a spiritual darkness to come over us, not to break fellowship with us, no, but it's during those dark times that we really can shine brightly for Christ. Because did you see what happened here in verse 39? When the centurion got saved in verse 39, truly this man was the Son of God. Why did that centurion get saved? He got saved because he saw Jesus in the darkness. Isn't it kind of fascinating that sometimes as Christians we run as quick as we can from darkness you know, we talk about wilderness times out here a lot where God allows us to go through the wilderness to learn things. And we try to get out of that wilderness as quick as we can. I'm in the wilderness. Lord, where's the exit? God says, no, I want you to stay in the wilderness. No, why would God want me to stay in the wilderness? Because when you're in the wilderness, you realize you have nothing else but Christ and you cling to Him. And when you're in the wilderness, people stop and say, okay, how are you going to handle this? See, some of the greatest testimonies I've seen is where people go through difficult times. 
It is really easy when everything goes great to say praise the Lord. But when your life is falling apart around you and you can still say with a straight face, praise the Lord, I love Christ, that carries more of an impact with me than anything else. The centurion saw Christ during his darkest time. And during that dark time, the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Maybe some of you today are going through a dark time and it has nothing to do with unconfessed sin. It has nothing to do with doing something wrong. You're saying, Lord, why are you allowing this darkness in my life? Maybe God says, I want you to shine for me. And you may be thinking, I don't want to shine for you. But that's part of the gig. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we realize our whole purpose and point in life is to be a light and a witness for Him. We don't get to choose how we're the light and witness. And I've heard people say this, and you know what? I've said it myself. Lord, I want to see the world get saved. I want to see things change. Lord, use me. But use me in these ways. Don't use me to go through some tragic circumstance where something happens to my kids or wife. Don't use me in that way. Lord, use me by letting me win the lottery or something like that. You know, that would be a lot more fun. How many times have we said, that, Lord, if I'd win the lottery, I promise you I would use all the money for you. Come on. What happens when God says, I want to use you through sickness? No, no, that's not good. I want to use you through the sickness of one of your loved ones. No, Lord, no. But sometimes it's through those darkness times that we really shine, and that's when the people say, truly this man was the Son of God. If you're in a dark time right now, I encourage you, maybe instead of trying to run out of the darkness, stop and say, Lord, are you going to use this for you? Are you going to use this as a light and a witness for you? Because if you are, Lord, give me strength to shine in the darkness. Give me strength to shine during that difficult time to be a light and a witness for you. Verse 40, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph, and Salome. Real quick about some of these gals here. Mary Magdalene, we've talked about her before. She was the one that uh, was obviously very close to Jesus, had the demons cast out of her. Mary, the mother of James, this is James the Lesser, one of the apostles. And Salome would have been the wife of Zebedee, uh, the mother of James and John, some of the other apostles, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So, Jesus has now died. Now, we need to talk a little bit more about this here. And I do want to get just one other perspective on this, if you could. Turn to John 19. John 19. We're going to be here in John 19 for a little bit, because I just want to talk a little bit more about this fact of his death. I believe it was um, Wednesday night this week, going through Isaiah. We focused on two words in Isaiah, righteousness and justice. And we talked about how God is a just God, and as a just God, sin has to be dealt with. The only way sin can be dealt with is through righteousness, and that's the righteousness of Christ. Very simply put, I've sinned. God says, since I'm a just God, a fair God, that sin has to be judged. Okay, James, how are you taking care of your sin? Lord, I can't take care of my sin. That's where Jesus comes in. I accept his righteousness, and therefore my sin is taken care of through him. This is the whole point of the spiritual side of the cross. This sin problem is now taken care of. Jump, if you will, to verse 28. After this of John 19. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on some hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of verse 30. Those three words. It is finished. 
Those are probably the three greatest words that could ever be said. It's done. It's over. It, it is completely done and over. It is finished. There is absolutely nothing that needs to be added to the completed work of Calvary, the cross, and salvation. It is done. Why is it for the last 2,000 years then we have been trying to add to salvation? Yeah, accepting Jesus Christ is great, but once you accept Jesus, also do this. No, 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 no. It is finished. Okay, yeah, it's finished, but also do this. No, it's not. There's nothing you need to add. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We like to add stuff to it. And some of those things we add to it are good things. There's nothing wrong with baptism. Baptism is wonderful. The baptism isn't salvation. There's nothing wrong with, you know, um, we can go on down the road here with reading your Bible and witnessing and sharing Christ. Those are all wonderful things, but those things aren't salvation. Salvation is based on us making a personal decision to accept Christ. It is finished. Jesus did not say to be continued. He did not say it is finished with a question mark. He knew it was all done. So why is it since it's all done, we're trying to do more? The longer I walk with the Lord, the more simple I find it is. It's finished. I just get to enjoy it. Listen to this. Now, if somebody has to get up and leave, don't leave during this point. Now, somebody's thinking, boy, I was just getting ready to get up to go. Um, you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to share Christ. You don't have to do any of that. That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. Once you're saved then you want to read your Bible and pray and share Christ. But if you are basing your salvation on something you are doing, you are missing the point of verse 30 of it is finished. Because you are adding to the salvation of Jesus. Unless I'm wrong, none of you are on the cross. There's nothing you can do to add to it. I cannot stress this point enough because we all see this and we all believe it, but yet when push comes to shove, we start thinking, I, I should probably do something. Well, of course you should probably do something. But doing something is not your salvation. I was reading this book, and this is a wonderful book here. And it's uh, called Basic Theology by uh, Charles Ryrie. And he's got this one little paragraph I just want to read. If because of the death of Christ, God is satisfied, listen to this question, then what can the sinner do to try to satisfy God? The answer is nothing. Everything has been done by God himself. The sinner can and need only receive the gift of righteousness God offers. Everything has been done by God himself. This is not a package deal where you and Jesus took care of your sins. He took care of your sins. It is finished. This is not a package deal of Jesus said, I'm just going to start it for you and then you can finish it up. It is finished. Whatever sin you are facing today has been defeated by Christ on the cross. Whatever issue you are facing today that brings worry, fear, or anxiety has been defeated by Christ on the cross. It is finished. Why is it that we feel like that things aren't done enough and that we need to do more? We need to add more. We need to whatever. It is finished. And I know you're saying, haven't you made this point? But you know the thing is, I've been saved for uh, 17 years. I still struggle with this point. And this is how I struggle with this point. You know, Lord, I, I, I need to read. I need to make more devotional time. I need to pray more. I need to write more people. I need to call more people. I need to spend more time in preparation. I need to, I need to, I need to. 
I don't need to. It's finished. Does that mean I don't have to? I don't have to. But hopefully I choose to. So here's the thing. We go to two extremes on this. One extreme is such walking in grace that anything goes. God just loves you. doesn't worry about what lifestyle choices you make. It doesn't worry about what you choose to do in life. God just loves you. God does love you. But He's not happy with some of the choices you make or I make. That's one extreme. The other extreme is this legalism of pounding the pulpit of you need to read more, you need to pray more, you need to witness more. You know what? I went through that phase for a while. Of that, okay, everybody, if you love Jesus, you're going to do this. Well, you can't force it. The answer is found in the middle. I love Jesus. I realize I'm saved by grace. And because of that, I want to do things for Him. I don't feel like I have to do devotions. I want to. I don't feel like I have to pray over those situations. I want to. It's the same thing with marriage. I don't have to love Dawn. I choose to. I don't have to be the loving husband, father. I want to. If it was a have-to thing, would it be love? Now, for me personally, this is me personally, I need a little bit of legalism in my life. I do. I need a little bit of legalism in my life to remind myself to make time for God. Because it would be so easy to get in the trap of, oh, God, you love me, I love you, and... Hopefully we can find some time to hang out together this week. I need that legalism a little bit of where I tell myself, James, you need to get up a little earlier before the kids and spend some time with me. Or you know what? The kids have gone to bed now. James, you need to take some time now and pray over those things. And if that's you, maybe a little bit of legalism is good. But don't go to the legalism of where you start feeling your salvation or your righteousness with Christ is based on what you do. I run into that with some people. I read this much. Well, great. You could always read more. I pray this long. That's wonderful. You could always pray longer. I did that for a while. I'd look at the clock. I was going to pray for this long. And I was going to read for this long. And I remember one time distinctly, I was done praying. I looked at the clock and I thought, i got ten more minutes. Okay, Lord, um, just bless everybody again. You know, and it was this legalism. And there was also times where I can remember I was going to read for so long. I got done, looked at the clock, i got to be done reading. Read longer. That's the beauty of grace. There's just this openness in this relationship where no, no matter what God says, I'm here, I'm available. You want to talk to me for a while? Talk to me. I don't care if it's 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. Spend some time with me. And we always talk about a prayer time. We forget 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says what? Pray without ceasing. Every hour, minute of the day is prayer time. Every hour, minute of the day is the time to spend with your Messiah, with Christ. Because He took care of it all. It's finished. I mean, don't we have these awkwardness with them? I keep thinking, don't we do the same thing in the world? Haven't you ever had that conversation with somebody that invites you over? Hey, why don't you come over? Fill in the blank, watch the game, do something. Do you want me to bring anything? No, you don't need to bring anything. Got it all covered. Oh, I should probably bring something. Uh, okay, no, I got everything covered. Do you need drinks? I mean, we go through this. We want to do something. We want to feel like we're part of it. There's that awkwardness of when you go out to somebody, maybe go out to eat and they pick up the bill. You're like, well, at least let me take care of the tip. We want to be involved. We want to feel like we've done something. And when it comes to Jesus on the cross, He says, could you just keep your hands off it, please? It's finished. I know it's finished, but I want to do something. Don't do something. Just enjoy the fact that it's finished and that you don't have to do something. And I love that. 
I love that that's such a picture of love and grace, that when we look at that picture, there's nothing you have done or I have done to deserve that. That's grace. That Christ says it's finished and there's nothing I need to do. Am I worth what He did on the cross? In no way whatsoever am I worth it. But Jesus thinks I am. I sure don't think I'm worth it. But Christ does. I know I'm not good enough. I know the blackness and sin of my heart. And Jesus says, James, I still love you. Because I see what you can become. True story. When Dawn and I were working together one time at a place, this is right after we got engaged, there was this gal that we both used to work with and, you know, I usually use this comment of people that don't have a filter between head and mouth, you know. She was one of those gals. I liked her, wonderful person, but she just, whatever she was thinking, it just came right out. I mean, it just came right out. So she finally put together one day that Dawn and I were engaged. And I remember her saying to me, she goes, you and Dawn are engaged? I said, yeah. She goes, how are you guys engaged? How did you get her? She is so pretty. And I, and I thought... <laughs> That's true how it went. And, and it's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for... So about five years into marriage, Dawn looks at me one time. She goes, I'm so pretty. What am I doing with you? No, I'm just kidding. Can't say it. <laughs> the, the point, though, is it's the same thing with Jesus. Sometimes I think Jesus is just going to get up one day and say, James, I'm so pretty. What am I doing with you? I could find somebody a lot better than you. He could. But that's grace that he doesn't. See, we sit here and we start trying to think, Lord, why do you love me? There is, he just loves you. You haven't done anything. There, there's nothing redeeming you or I have done to make God love us. Isaiah 64 says, our works are like filthy rags. I heard a pastor say one time, on your best day, you're still unholy. See, we have a trouble with that because we keep trying to figure it out. I've just reached the point of, God, you just love me. Why? I don't know, but you just, you just love me. And I don't have to do anything about it. Do you ever stop and realize there's absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more? See, but we still think that, don't we? I'm going to read some more. God's going to love you more? No, He's already proven His love. It's finished. It's done on the cross. Well, I'm going to pray more. Well, pray more just because you want to pray more. <clears throat> Praying more is not going to make God love you more. It's a wonderful thing. And so that three words, if it is finished, no matter what you are facing today, be it a physical issue, be it a spiritual issue, be it an emotional issue, it is finished, it is done. And there's nothing you have to worry about with it. You can rest and relax in that. And you can realize it was all done through Christ on the cross. Now the question comes up, what are we going to do with this information? What are we going to do with this? Keep your hand here. And John 19, because we're coming right back to it, but jump back to Mark 15. It says, verse 42, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he had found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled against the door stone. Excuse me, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Now I want to talk about this Joseph of Arimathea here for a second. Did you catch this in verse 43? My new King James says, "Taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus." Jump back to John 19 now. 
verse 38 of John 19. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys and a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of Jews is to bury. Jews did not embalm their dead, so they buried them right away. Now, how many of us are Joseph of Arimathea? Did you catch that in verse 38? Once again, my new King James. Being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Now, now just ask yourself this. Are you a secret disciple of Christ? Don't let anybody know. I follow Jesus, but I just don't want people to know. They're going to treat me differently at work. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. It's going to be strange. I wonder how many secret disciples of Christ there are. There's going to come a time and a place as a disciple of Christ, you're just going to have to make a stand. Publicly, openly proclaim it. For Joseph of Arimathea, it was right here. Mark says he had to take courage to go to Pilate. Here, and it says he was a secret disciple, he had to go to Pilate. Why is that such a big deal? By going and asking for the body of Christ, what is he doing? He's proclaiming he's a follower of Christ. This is the, the group that just crucified him, just killed him. In fact, the Bible says that uh, Joseph was part of the leadership that voted against crucifying Christ. Joseph was taking a stand. I'm telling you right now, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, but you want to keep it on the down low, there's going to come a time and a place where God's going to say, no, proclaim it. I don't want to be one of those religious nuts. Then don't be one of those religious nuts. Just be a follower of Jesus. See, the religious nuts sometimes, I think, are trying so hard to proclaim it. They force it. When you are a follower of Christ, it's just so obvious, it's just so evident, people just will notice. And when given an opportunity to take a stand, take a stand, make a stand. Is it hard sometimes? You bet it's hard. We all could stand up here and give a testimony of times where we were nervous to make a stand for the Lord. And we have to take courage and say, okay, God, you're calling me to say something. I'm going to say it. That's not the right time. It's not the right place. If God says go, you go. If God says stop, we stop. And I just wonder how many secret disciples we have. Seriously, if you're going to go into work tomorrow and you could take a straw poll of everybody that you work with, how many of them even know that you call yourself a Christian? How many of them even know that you claim to be a follower of Christ? I don't say this to guilt you. I don't say this to throw condemnation on you. I just wonder how many of us are secret disciples. We need to take courage we need to take a stand and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to make a stand for what is right and I'm going to make a stand for who you are. Joseph of Arimathea had to do it. We're also introduced here to Nicodemus in verse 39. We're first introduced to Nicodemus again, excuse me, in John 3, where he came to him at night. He was the one where Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus was one of those guys that knew about Jesus, liked Jesus, wanted to know more about Jesus, but he was scared to go public with it. So he came at night. Nicodemus eventually came around and said, I need to take a public stand too. I know some Nicodemuses. They really love the Lord. Privately, quietly, at night. Publicly in the open, they don't. Sometimes there's going to have to be a time and a place where as a Nicodemus you have to make that stand and say, you know what? It doesn't matter what anybody thinks or says. I'm taking a stand for what I believe is right. And that's what has to happen. As we look at this now with Christ, 
The last point I want to say about this, and we've got a couple things we're going to finish up with. <clears throat> I don't know if you caught back in Mark 15, verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, what happened was in the temple, they had this section in the back that was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, they had this veil that protected that. See, you only could go into the Holy of Holies once a year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and only one priest could go in, the high priest. Only once. That was the only access they had to God is that in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. Once a year they had that access. They had this huge veil that protected it. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, that veil was about 18 inches thick interwoven with goat hair and fabric, etc. This was, I mean, you're talking a thick veil. Can you imagine being the priest on duty where that veil just is torn? And all of a sudden, there is the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that no one is allowed to see, touch, be around. And it's right there in front of you. And how is it torn? From top to bottom. That shows heaven was opening the door to full access with God. Hebrews 4.16 says that we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Can you imagine if Christianity was based on one day of year in the fall? One day. One person in the entire world had access to God. One person. Part of the beauty of Christianity is if you want to pray to God, you pray to Him right now. If you want to read His Word, you read His Word right now. If you want to worship Him, you worship Him right now. Problem is, 2,000 years later, we have become so accustomed to this access to God that we take it for granted. We forget what had to happen for us to have this access to God. Something is bothering you, there's a nervousness, there's a fear, worry, or anxiety, you boldly go to the throne room of grace right then. There's a sin in your life that the Lord has laid on your heart saying, this has to be dealt with. You go to the throne room of grace right there. You don't have to go find some lamb and grab the priest and saying, hey, can we sacrifice this lamb to make it right? You just go say, Lord, I'm sorry. You want to go deeper with your Messiah? You just right then and there pray and read and study. Complete access. We, we lose the picture of what this means. This huge veil, torn, opened up access to God. And how is that done? Through Christ on the cross. Through it is finished. If the only point you get out of today is that it is finished. It's done. There's nothing you can do to add, say, or take away to what Jesus did on the cross. And what a beautiful thing that is. The pure simplicity of salvation. Now, we're going to finish up here with a couple things, but just want to remind you of some things. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus did nothing wrong. He took your sin, my sin on the cross. That sin caused a darkness. That's what that spiritual darkness is. is Jesus taking that punishment so we don't have to. And remember, if you're going through a dark time right now, what is God trying to tell you? Is there something in your life that needs to be changed? If so, we definitely want to pray with you. Here in a little bit, we're going to actually have the teens come up and do something special, and then Marv's going to finish with the song. But if anybody has anything they want to pray about, they can come up during Marv's song. I'll be sitting right here in front. I would love to get a chance to pray with them. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you realize I'm in darkness that sin needs to be dealt with. Maybe there's not a sin. Maybe there's just a darkness in your life right now and God's saying, I want you to shine like Christ did. The centurion sees it. And maybe you need strength and encouragement. I'm just you're going through a tough time and you're crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
God has not forsaken you. He's there in that darkness. He wants you to shine for Him. If you need prayer for that, you can come up and I'd love to get a chance to pray for you too. Or maybe you're Joseph, Nicodemus, the secret disciples. Maybe God is saying, time to quit hiding. Time to take a stand. Time to be that man or woman of God that He has called you to be. And maybe He's saying, time to come out and really show the world who you are and make a stand for me. If you need strength and encouragement for that, I'll be up here. Definitely want to get a chance to pray with you. Whatever it is, it's finished. It's finished. That's the beauty of Christ. It is all done so that way there's nothing we can do other than just hang on to that gift of salvation. As it just said, as Charles Ryrie said, there's nothing we can do. What a beautiful thing that is. So without much further ado here, um, a little bit of introduction. Uh, you know, Heidi,